know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to collaborate with the La Follette School of Public Affairs to interview Dr. Susan Webb Yaki, Director of the La Follette School of Public Affairs and Professor of Political Science and Public Affairs. Professor Yaki's research and teaching interests include the U.S. public policymaking process, public management, regulation, administrative law, and interest group politics. She's the recipient of numerous research and teaching awards and has published articles in many, many of the most prestigious journals in political science and public policy. She is currently working on a research report on federal guidance documents for the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which will be shared with the Biden administration. Professor Yaki's research on this subject seeks to offer recommendations to the new presidential administration about enacting reforms to facilitate greater public engagement in government regulation decision-making processes. Well, first things first, thanks so much for being with us on the podcast today, Professor Yaki. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, we're just happy to have you. But since this is your first time on 1050 Bascom, we'd like to start with just a little bit about you and your background and research interests. And additionally, we're curious as to what set you on the pathway towards becoming a professor and studying your area of work. So we want to ask... Were you like a politics and policy junkie as a kid or high school or college? Just like, when did your interest start to take hold? And then what shaped your academic and intellectual pathway? That's a great question. And I absolutely was a politics nerd, although maybe not in the way that all of your listeners were um, when they were growing up. Um, My interest in politics was always really active oriented. And so we had really active debates around our family dinner table about political issues. So my father happened to be a Reagan appointee to the federal bench. And my mother is this super soup kitchen liberal, right? Because of that, we were always talking about ideas and solutions and compromise and politics as a result. And that's what really got me most excited about studying politics as I got older. I also was really active in student government. You know, I was that kid. I was the student body president of my college. And I, you know, really feel like that applied work later influenced my scholarship. Um, Even though it was as a student, those lessons are eternal and I still carry them with me today. Yeah, that is certainly a um, refreshing take. You are now the director of the LaFalle School of Public Affairs. Can you share with us a little bit about your pathway from being in the political science department here to now the LaFalle School, especially in the context of 
you know, the LaFalle School doubling its faculty and adding a certificate program. There's so many things to talk about with it. Yes, I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk about that. So I'm a faculty member in both political science and at the LaFalle School that I'm joined by a number of colleagues that have that kind of joint appointment. Some of my colleagues, such as uh, Professor David Weimer or, or Professor Mark Koplovich or Professor John Peavy House, all of us are jointly appointed between the LaFalle School and the Department of Political Science. And that is actually a part of La Follette School's tradition. So the La Follette School was really founded with this idea that we are going to bring together folks that are interested in kind of the practical applied parts of their field, be that political science in my case, or economics or sociology or the business school or psychology. So we have traditionally brought together at the La Follette School all different, dif- um, different disciplinary perspectives to engage in interdisciplinary dialogue on public policy problems and solutions. And you know, that continues today. And that's one of the reasons why I was actually drawn to UW-Madison is because of its absolutely excellent Department of Political Science and its excellent policy school. And so that really matched how I view myself and my scholarship. So as director of the La Follette School, I have had a chance to practice applied politics in new ways. I love being director of the La Follette School. It is an organization that over the last six years, when I've sort of been on and off director of the La Follette School, has changed dramatically. So it started as a very small, boutique, high class, high research production faculty with a very specialized master's program, um, master's in public affairs and master's in international public affairs. And that worked well for years. But one of the things that my colleagues and I at the Fall School did was we went through some strategic planning processes that had us, you know, looking around and saying, we just felt like we had a lot more to give, that there were a lot of students on our campus. There were a lot of parts of our broader community that needed some of the evidence-based common sense solutions that were coming out of our classroom and coming out of our scholarship. And that's when we decided that we wanted to do more. And that is the kind of transformation of the LaFollette School has resulted. You mentioned just in the last year, we've about doubled in our faculty size. That's letting us teach new students, including in this wildly popular certificate in um, public policy program that we're offering to undergraduates for the first time. It's just so exciting to get a chance to share some of that interdisciplinary perspective on public policy with more students at UW-Madison. Yeah, absolutely. I feel really lucky myself. I'm about to graduate with the certificate as well. I feel so lucky to have hit the stride uh, with La Follette right in time for it. But in your role as director, what are some of like the goals and uh, missions that you're working towards is like, you know, you're continuing to develop the the La Follette School's uh, reputation. The main goals for the La Follette School is to broaden its reach and its impact. And we hope to do that in a couple different ways. So one, we want to work even more closely with our undergraduate students on campus, you know, to offer our certificate to the students who are interested in it. Um, We're now exploring um, a certificate in health policy for our undergraduate students at the 
um, at UW-Madison, which is very representative of the fact that over half of our La Follette School faculty have done research in the health space. And if you compare that to the fact that about 20% of UW-Madison undergraduates expect to have careers in the health sphere in the future, it makes for a really wonderful combination. So we, we expect to continue our reach and expand our impact in that way. We also at the LaFalde School have a special mission to pursue the Wisconsin idea. So to share the research and the evidence that is generated at our school, but also across our wonderful university with policymakers, decision makers, and members of the community. So let me give you one example of a program that we've really jump-started over the last couple of years and we hope to do more of in the future. And that's that the LaFalde School works directly with our Wisconsin legislature, so our state legislators, to bring them evidence, cutting edge research on policy topics that they care about. And the, that last part is the most important. Legislators every year, bipartisan group, come together with some of our LaFalle faculty and staff and the legislators identify a topic that they wanna hear more about. They're interested in it, they think it matters for Wisconsinites. And over the course of the year, are led by our wonderful staff at the LaFollette School. We gather together a program of, of researchers to inform our legislators and our legislative staffers on the cutting edge issues of our times. So for instance, we just did an event with um, a large number of legislators from both sides of the aisle, many legislative staff, and we all came together to learn more about health inequalities in Wisconsin and thinking about how those inequalities um, can be addressed with particular public policy solutions. And that is a topic that whether you are Republican or Democrat, you care about, right? And that is exactly the kind of facilitation of research and kind of evidence-based translation of work that is part and parcel to the Wisconsin idea. And so that's another example of a, um, a program that we expect to expand upon in the future. Well, you mentioned how one of the programs you're looking to expand upon is the undergraduate certificates from the Follett School, but truth is they're very popular already. As Adam mentioned, he's just about to graduate with that certificate. And on the podcast, we've talked to a whole host of professors here who are involved in teaching some of those classes in some way, including Professor Mary Michelle Davis, uh, Professor Teodoro, Professor Smeeting, and just a whole host of them. And they've been some of my favorite conversations that I've been able to be a part of. So for maybe some of especially our younger undergraduate listeners who maybe don't know so much about this certificate and might be thinking about adding it, could you share with us a little bit about what this is and some of the course offerings available through this certificate? I'd be happy to. So for folks interested in the undergraduate certificate, well, first I'll say we have a wonderful website. So, you know, check it out and, you know, take a look at all of the kind of specific detail on the, the classes offered and um, the possibilities. But in a nutshell, if you're a student on campus and you're a poli-sci major or a business major, or a engineering major, or a art history major. And at the end of the day, you wonder, 
you know, how does government interact with my sector? Or how do things actually get done um, in the real world um, of politics or maybe even nonprofits that interface with, um, with public policy? How does, how does that really translate into outcomes then the LaFile School Certificate's the place for you, right? And it can be paired with any major um, that's already um, on the books across campus. So the certificate begins with a sort of a gateway course to talk about kind of what is public policy? And it takes different approaches, you know, political science, economics approaches to studying public policy, sociological approaches. And it wraps around um, those approaches um, with concrete examples of public policy topics. You know, maybe that's poverty, research on poverty. Maybe that's research on healthcare, um, racial inequities, transportation, infrastructure, right? So if we, if we haven't learned anything about the recent infrastructure crisis in Texas, it's that, you know, getting nonprofits and, you know, for-profit um, organizations in, in conversation with public sector agencies is critical to common infrastructure provision, like water, you know, like heat, right? And so those kind of topics are delved into in this kind of um, gateway course. The next piece of the undergraduate certificate is a methodological course. It's getting you thinking like a researcher in the public policy space, giving you some of those tools to think, um, to analyze, to, um, to assess, to evaluate. Those are all key words to the LaFollette School. We are a very quantitative oriented program and you can't leave the certificate without getting a taste of that. It wouldn't be right without getting a taste of that. And those are skills you're gonna to bring to the workforce as well. So if you wanna work for the United Way in Dane County, right, and you wanna make a difference by um, you know, investing in programs that work, you gotta know how to evaluate whether programs work or not. And that's the kind of assessment strategies that we're interested in teaching our students in our that methodological course at the LaFollette School. We call it our skills course. Um, in the, for the third course, you can pick a policy topic um, um, based class all across the university, um, including in the Department of Political Science, which offers some wonderful policy based courses. La Fala also offers some courses. For instance, my, one of my new colleagues, um, Lauren Schmitz, offers a course on social genomics. So thinking about what are the social implications for our broadening understanding of our genetic code. So if I know that you are very likely to have a heart attack at age 40 through your genetics, maybe I won't give you a job. Maybe I would insure you at different rates for your life insurance, right? These are public policy related questions that are only enabled through these advances in science, right? And so in Lauren's course is a great job of debating some of those issues, both the practical and the ethical implications of those issues. So that's in the third piece. And the fourth piece is an internship. So we want our students out there in the workforce working for for-profit organizations that interface with government in maybe a consulting framework or a government relations framework or in nonprofits or in traditional public sector um, you know, placements like the legislature or government sector agencies. Yeah. Speaking from experience, there are so many courses that you can take to fulfill that third policy course. 
Kind of moving on now to some of your research interests. I know you're writing a report right now that you are going to present to the federal government and the Biden administration, and you're writing it with the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Can you talk to us a little bit about this article, this guidance on guidance framework that you are building and reporting on? Yeah, I mean, you ask a researcher to talk about her research, and boy, you know, you're going to get quite an answer. So bear with me for a second, because we're going to we're going to dig deep for you to understand kind of the implications of this new report that I'm writing. All right. So all of us know that Congress writes the laws, right? And after Congress writes the laws, those laws are typically sent on to the appropriate administrative agency, so government bureaucratic agency to implement. So in the words of the Supreme Court to quote, fill up the details, end of quote, of what might be incomplete, or let's just say it perfectly, you know, on purpose, vague, congressionally passed statutes, right? And, you know, there's a lot, and there's a lot of reasons why we might end up with um, a vague statute. You know, maybe it's because the legislators had to compromise and they could compromise on principles, but not details. Or maybe it's that the topic is so complicated that they really just can't tackle it in the legislative process. And then they, so they hand it off to the subject matter experts in the administrative agencies, the bureaucracies. Okay. All right. So when agencies fill up those details, so when they, they are oftentimes writing regulations. So when we hear the word government regulation, that's what we mean. We mean these details that, you know, the Department of Transportation is actually setting the standards for, you know, how the interstate highway system has to run. Okay. Or um, more concretely, what does it mean when the food says it's organic? What exactly does it mean? Right? It, like it, it, it means something because of U.S. Department of Agriculture regulation. And that has huge implications for makers of organic food, as well as people that eat organic food, right? We want to know that there are, that there are some standards behind that, that those are frequently set in regulation. Okay. So government agencies have a very prescribed, very complicated process that they go through when they write those regulations. And they're required by law to put forward first a draft regulation. And you can think of this like your draft final paper. Okay. It has all the parts of your midterm paper that are necessary, but it's just not done yet and it needs some feedback. That feedback process is actually required by law too. So and when agencies have to make this draft regulation public, then any concerned member of the public, it's usually interest groups, but any concerned member of the public can then comment on that draft. And the agencies have to consider those comments before issuing their final regulation, which is then legally binding. My, a lot of my research has focused on that process. Do these comments really matter? And I find, you know, in fact, they really do. They actually change the content frequently between what's in that draft rule and that final rule. Okay, especially when there's a lot of uniformity in the messages from comments, we see a lot of change. All right, okay. So that's the normal way in which regulations are written. Um, it turns out that that is kind of time consuming and um, it's a very deliberative. And a lot of agencies um, have other means for making policy decisions too. And one of those other means, which is a lot faster and doesn't really have, almost has no process requirements at all, is something called 
guidance documents. So instead of writing a regulation, an agency might issue a guidance document. And that guidance document does not legally bind society, but it provides guidance on the agency's thinking about a topic. And what scholars, and this is not nitpicky, what scholars will say is that it doesn't really matter at some level. Oftentimes, if this is the agency's thinking and you're a regulated entity that deals with an agency day in and day out and has permitting activities and enforcement activities, even if it's a guidance and you don't have to follow it, you almost always do. Okay. So the question then becomes like, this is a much easier process. They don't exactly legally bind, but they kind of do bind the public, right? Why wouldn't agencies issue them? Well, it turns out they do. They issue gui these guidance documents all the time. In fact, all of us know of one that was recently issued. Okay, so think about the U.S. Center for um, Centers for Disease Control and Protection, the CDC. Just within the last month, the CDC has issued guidance, a guidance document on reopening K through 12 schools. It has a lot of recommendations in there for how schools ought to be reopened. And the press coverage around that guidance document was a lot around how their recommendations, but that many school officials are treating them as standards, right? And so here's an example of guidance, doc, a policy tool that agency officials use that they don't have any process requirements around and they don't have to take public feedback on that has rule-like or standard-like effect, but doesn't have some of the same protections, if you will. So my project is about systematizing the guidance process some. So keeping some of its nimbleness and flexibility, but creating, for instance, a repository where people could actually find them. Right now, they're all over the web on like different websites. You can't track them. You can't figure out um, what's in effect, what's not in effect, right? So my project is about um, systematizing some of the pro process as well as making some recommendations on um, providing public participation opportunities for the most important of the guidance documents. That is fascinating. And there, I think there's a, a lot, a lot that we have to kind of jump into and unpack there. But first, I kind of want to ease into talking about this and the weeds of your research by asking a procedural question that I think is going to be really interesting to some of our listeners who mostly hear about regulatory outcomes after they've been made. So I want to ask, like, where do these reports essentially come from? Like, say, for example, when organizations or others are asked to provide some kind of information or research, how does that process happen? It Does the Biden administration or other administrations release a call for research reports or... Is this more on the side of these researchers just offering up research they think is going to be useful and effective? Or how do these essentially start and where do the motivations for these studies come from? Each study is a little bit different. So um, I can talk specifically about my guidance report, which I'm actually working on right now. But I can talk more broadly about other means by which scholarly research is translated into um, and affects um, public sector decision making. Okay, so I'll start with my guidance report. So right now, this guidance report is really coming off of a about six years of research that I've been doing, primarily on the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and how the FDA makes policies. 
So about six years ago, I received this wonderful half million dollar grant to take on a new project on FDA rulemaking or regulatory policymaking. And as I delved more into the FDA policymaking process, I very quickly realized that the FDA makes a lot of its rules through the standard notice and comment process. That's that process where we have to do the draft rule and the final rule. But the FDA also makes a lot of its policy decisions through the guidance process, right? And it was really through that research and worked with a lot of UW students on, you know, compiling policy documents. And there's a big survey of public participants trying to influence these rules that we um, undertook as well. So out of that research, we get to today. Right. And that is um, with a brand new presidential administration in place. And one of the first things that um, President Biden does is he issues an executive order which rescinds. So kind of revokes, essentially takes off the books an existing President Trump executive order on guidance. And that got me really interested in in wanting to know more. And really what that does is sort of is creates this space for the Biden administration to create new policy around guidance document development and kind of the formation of those. And so I'm partnering right now with the IBM Center for Research and Government. It's a a bit of a, I would call it a think tank of sorts. Um, it, It is particularly interested in contracting with established researchers like myself and translating their public management research into efficiencies and effectiveness at the federal government level. So that's really its mission. And it's why it was such a great partner for me in this particular endeavor. So they'll publish my report, hopefully. Um, and um, then it will, um, they have a variety of contacts within um, the White House, within the Office of Management and Budget, which is a key part of the, um, the executive um, office of the presidency. They'll be able to at least get my report into the right hands to have it read. And, you know, that's where the impact can take place. For other scholarship, you know, you know, writing in the top journals and then translating that work, be it through op-eds or white papers or meeting with members of Congress is another means. For instance, a couple of years ago, I got an email that, that was from Senator Elizabeth Warren's staff. And she said, Elizabeth Warren read something that I had written in the Washington Post. And could I come to Washington? Um, She wanted to have dinner with me and she wanted to hear more about a topic she cared about, which happens to be regulatory capture. So the idea that this process of public commenting can be overtaken by regulated entities and kind of squeeze out the voices of the public something she was really interested in and she wanted to know more about. So myself and a couple um, law professors met her for dinner one night on Capitol Hill. It was a wonderful experience where I am happy to report a lot of my time was spent saying, no, actually, that's not how it works. The data doesn't show that. (laughs) The data doesn't show that either, right? Um, And so it was a wonderful example of where high-level research, so research that myself and a UW-Madison former doctoral student, Simon Hadar, who's now has his PhD and is a professor at another Big Ten school, he and I wrote a paper in the American Political Science Review, which is, you know, really our top political science journal, that then got translated into the Washington Post and got translated into, you know, something that Elizabeth Warren read and brought me to Washington. So that's another pathway for our research to really have a public impact.
To kind of follow up on that and to also loop in some stuff that we've been talking about earlier, it seems that through your personal experience and also through just the mission of the La Follette Policy School that there is at least some ears for informed research and informed, I guess, knowledge from lawmakers. But my question is, is that do you feel like this is the norm or the exception? And additionally, do you feel like there's enough of that desire to get it translated into actual policy? Because, you know, we are living in what have some people have called a post-truth era. And especially in an era where trust for institutions of higher education and just establishment institutions in general is declining. So it kind of conflicts with maybe some preconceived biases that I may have had about legislative attitudes towards intelligentsia that so many are so receptive. So I guess my question is, do you feel like that the legislators who are willing to give you a receptive ear are the exception? Or do you feel like there's maybe a misconception about the hunger for good research and facts in lawmaking? Well, that's a wonderful question. And I mean, it's really a question of our times. And it calls into question the kind of you know, research and you know, the translation of it into evidence and you know, how evidence is believed. So I guess I'll answer that in a couple different ways. So you know, on the one hand, we know that evidence is needed more than ever right, to kind of cut through um, and kind of grab attention, kind of real science-based facts are, you know, terrifically important to society today. I will say that on researchers like me, there should be and ought to be even a greater standard of being transparent in how we come to those research conclusions. So our process really matters and it has to be front and center to folks from both sides of the aisle to even have a chance of being believed. Because we know that when we finish our research report, politicians are gonna use it any way they want to. And they might very well use it to forward their interests. And what's important to me is that the research itself you know, stands and it, you know, it's done at a high level of caliber and quality and that it, you know, at least we're trying to translate it. It is also true that there's, you know, different variable, variable levels of interest in certain, you know, legislators in interacting with research. Um, you know, there's variable levels of interest in kind of everything in society, but it's not always the usual suspects. You know, I will say that I personally have had a fabulous conversation on agency guidance with our own Senator, Ron Johnson. Um, He's really interested in the guidance process. He in fact has authored statutes in the past on the guidance process that have some qualities that I find, you know, fascinating and interesting. You know, on the other side of the aisle, Sheldon Whitehouse, who's a member of Congress, a senator from Rhode Island, has introduced legislation directly based on my research, right? And so, you know, it, it's, it's different suspects. It's not always the same ones. They're not always on the same side of the aisle. Um, but I think really to have research be most meaningful, that's the way it's got to be. It's got to be appealing to core values that both um, Republicans and Democrats care about. And it has to be that way in particular right now, because we do know we are living in one of the most polarized times in American history in terms of kind of people's both acceptance of facts and evidence, um, as well as kind of the 
predilection to move and only kind of work together with our own political camps. Speaking of just kind of the work that individuals can do, and then to kind of, you know, shift a little bit back to your research in this report, your work suggests that we, the people, the public that is, should be a little bit more aware and engaged in the regulatory process. So could you help us understand maybe what tools there are for citizens in the context of this research and what we can do as individuals in a society to foster this more democratized, citizen-driven regulatory process? It's a great question. And again, I'm writing my report right now on guidance, but I'll give you a sneak preview. And that is that common rule of law principles in the United States, United States government, suggest that citizens and um, residents have to be able to understand, at least point to the public policies that are affecting their lives. And guidance is a great example of where there's no repository for all of the guidance that are presently in effect. And, you know, this seems like a common sense solution to me, that we ought to create a website (laughs) which has all of the guidances that are in effect that allow us to understand the policies that govern us before we can even try to affect them and change them, right? And so we're really, you know, starting, I would say, um, in the guidance process, really at step one. You know, step two then is, given that we can understand at least point two of them and find them, how do we affect them? And here is where we have oftentimes interest groups coming together to represent citizens, citizens' views. One of the big um, topics that always gets a lot of public comments during the notice and comment rulemaking process is listings on the endangered species um, list for thinking about whether, for instance, the polar bear ought to be listed as an endangered species or not. Now, that's something that a lot of regular citizens care about. And how people find out about that typically is kind of usually filtered through an interest group that might have a you know, co-aligned interest with you know, members of the public. And so finding out what they are and then engaging in the topics that you particularly care about matters. Now, for most rules, that's not citizens, right? Most rules, that's regulated entities, businesses, trade groups, unions, right? And here, let me make a pitch that those aren't the bad guys, right? (laughs) Those folks need to have a voice in this process too. They need to share with regulators what the effects of a draft regulation might be on their business, on their livelihood, on their um, their future. Many of them want certainty in terms of you know getting regulations on the books that maybe even the playing field or um, advance values like you know sustainability or diversity, right? So you know it is it. I don't want to dismiss the importance of having a back and forth um, process for regulated entities and regulated businesses to also have their voices heard in the regulatory process, including on guidance documents, which that process does not exist for guidance documents presently. Absolutely. Very timely to mention the uh, endangered species example, especially with the wolf open season recently here in Wisconsin. But that's, you know, a whole other can of worms. With this research on public engagement, I'm going to say the famous phrase, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Do you have any concerns about increased public engagement, especially in this age of misinformation? That's a great question. You know, in some ways, I don't. And the reason why, and it's it's a particular reason, 
to policymaking in this venue. So by this venue, I mean in the bureaucratic agencies. You know, you might wonder, what do a lot of La Follette master's students do with a master's in public affairs? Well, a lot of La Follette master's students who have gone through a kind of our rigorous two-year training program, a lot of them go forth and work in administrative agencies. You know, they might work here in Wisconsin at the Department of Children and Families, or they might work in Washington, D.C., like one of my former students um, at the Department of Transportation. Those folks get steeped in the expertise of their topics, right? So they have the skills, the analysis skills, and then they learn and research and know they're they are truly experts. That's how they get their job, okay? Right, and so the public engagement works a little bit differently when you are engaging with experts whose jobs do not depend on elections, right? What they need, what these experts want from public engagement is they want that kind of technical, and political information on how a draft regulation is going to affect people in the field, broadly construed. They want that information because they want to make the very best policies possible. And when they are reading research or findings that don't make sense to them, they have the technical capacity to say, yeah, well, that's not right. <laughs> right. And they actually have in the final rule that, that creates that binding document, agencies have a, a, something called a preamble where they respond to all the public comments that were issued. And so, for instance, I'm working on a big project right now with a professor from Harvard on the regulations that have been issued in response to the Dodd-Frank Act, which was passed about a decade ago now. So the Dodd-Frank Act was this huge piece of legislation that was supposed to reform the financial services industries as a result of some of the crises in um, 2008. So many, many, many regulations have been issued as a result of that particular statute, hundreds, right? And we're looking at the regulations that came out and you can see in the response to comments. So the agency officials will go through and say, you all, you know, some commenters said X, that's wrong. So we're not changing our rule as a result. Some commenters told us why we had never thought of that before. So we are going to change our rule as a result of these comments. And so um, because they are, um, you know, here's an advantage of the fact we have policymakers who are unelected. They do have to have um, consideration of the public comments. They have to work on the best scientific evidence that's that's that um, that is present, and that is their standard of review for the public engagement. And they're um, by the way, they're kept in check through the court system on that. So there can you know, um, commenters can um, appeal to the courts to say that an agency regulator didn't take their comments seriously, but they have to prove that they didn't take it seriously, right? And that causes that engagement and causes that, you know, kind of level of consideration where they're able to set aside um, what, you know, what are not truly kind of facts and evidence in a way that potentially an elected legislator feels differently constrained by. You brought up an incredibly interesting point in that, um, well, all of it was incredibly interesting, but particularly the point about agency officials not being beholden to elections. Is that like an inherent advantage to the way that we've set up our like federal agency system where they can kind of govern? Is that is that an advantage of this system, I guess? It is most certainly an advantage and is most certainly a disadvantage. I mean, it's both of those things held in tandem, 
right? So, you know, we live in a representative democracy where we rely on our elected officials to act on our behalf. By its very nature, unelected officials who are making policy decisions on our behalf rubs against that, you know, critical norm and value um, within American society. And so there have to be means to hold those unelected policymakers accountable. And many people think that there are adequate means, right? So for instance, many um, leaders of, of these public sector agencies are actually appointed by elected officials. Um, and so that creates a level of responsiveness. Um, the budgets for these agencies are held by legislators. Um, and so legislators can use the power of the purse to constrain agency action. And I already mentioned the courts, where the courts are going to be sitting in review, making sure that agency actions are not, in the court's words, quote, arbitrary or capricious. Right. And so we're going to have these checks on agency action. And really, to be frank, a lot of political science scholarship that's around agency policymaking is about those tensions. Is it good or is it bad? Right. And that has launched you know, a thousand sh ships um, in terms of political science articles. And the, but that but there's a good reason why. And that's because we need these regulations because of the complexity of our society. We need that kind of certainty um, in terms of our laws that is it's impossible to create within our statutory processes at the national level or the state level. It's just impossible. But we also need to know that we still live in a representative democracy where our elected officials are the ones who are making the big calls in terms of policy determinations. Adam and I uh, occasionally refer to the kind of yes and kind of no answer as the uh, professor special. But as we're starting to run up on our time here, we want to ask you what haven't we talked about that maybe we should have talked about? Or is there anything that you feel like our listeners really need to know that we haven't really covered today yet? Yeah, you know, the one thing that I would love to tell our listeners who whoever who has made it through this podcast thus far, boy, I mean, you're holding on. And, um, you know, one of the things I want to tell you is this next generation of students is really engaged with these issues, right? So we are living at a time in society where you can see students who are 18 to 22 just washing their hands of this and saying, forget it, right? Like this is, why would I bother? You know, the deck is stacked against me. Things are already decided. Um, there are all these inequities across society. Um, you can't talk to one another anymore. Like, you know, why not throw in the towel and say, um, forget about it? And that is just not what I'm seeing on the ground, right? We have this um, new certificate in public policy, which doubled in students in its second year. Uh, we have this, we have our political science undergraduate classes have never been fuller, right? We have, and they are, um, engaging in hard, rigorous thinking, writing papers, you know, interning in places where um, society is made better off by their efforts. Um, so if we, if you thought students were running away from some of these issues, they're running toward them. And that's what we need to know um, to make sure that society is going to be better off in the future than it is even today. Absolutely. The last thing we like to ask our guests recently, um, 
is what are you hopeful about? That might have covered it, but um, are there other things you're hopeful about as well now that we're in this, I guess we're three months into the new year now and a couple months into this new administration? Yeah. So what am I hopeful on? Well, I already, yeah, I mean, I kind of covered it, but you can't do better than um, our next generation of students. You know, another thing that I'm really hopeful for, thinking about the role that places like the LaFalle School play in society is the fact that more than ever, we need nonpartisan conveners on critical public policy topics. And so, you know, that LaFalle can play that role that can, you know, bring people together and try to bridge divides. I find it incredibly optimistic. I mean, I'm excited for what might come in the future. Um, I'll give you a, a taste of two possibilities coming up. So on March 24th, LaFalle School is hosting a UW alum by the name of Katie Harbuth. Katie Harbuth is the public policy director of Facebook. Can you think of an issue that is more contentious right now than the regulation and the kind of political place that big tech plays in society. Katie's going to come and talk with our students with our, it's actually open live zoom event. Anybody that wants to come, come 24th of March with Katie Harbath. It's going to be terrific. And it's a great example of our mission. Um, when we come back together, which I hope we do um, in the fall, LaFalle school is going to be hosting a day long summit on climate change. You know, bringing together in October the leading experts, both at the LaFalle School, including one of my new faculty colleagues, Morgan Edwards, who's a data scientist who studies kind of energy issues, bringing together all these experts, practitioners, students, policymakers to think about what's next in energy development as well as climate change in the United States. And in March, we're also going to host David Brooks from the New York Times. So a really prominent um, conservative voice will be with us uh, during homecoming week in October. So, you know, those kind of platforms for nonpartisan discussions or partisan discussions, but, you know, coming at it from a solutions orientation are, is something that I get really excited about the possibilities around. That sounds right. I'm a, I myself am making little notes on my calendar, but uh, seriously, in all serious. Thank you so much for being with us today, Professor Yaki. It's been great talking to you, and we'd we'd really hope to see you again soon and have the chance to talk to you again on some more some more issues in the future. Well, I'm delighted to have been hosted by the podcast, and what a fun conversation! So, thank you for including me. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now.